Alright. You ready? Yep. Finally. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Alright. I am now. Okay. Now you're ready? Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I'm Justin. I'm Darren. Today, we are going to discuss Slaughterhouse-Five. Now, we have both read the book and watched the movie. I have a feeling we'll be discussing both, so just be aware of that when we get into the spoiler territory. We will probably be discussing both. This is also content that is probably not going to be the best for children and possibly not for work. There are a few things that happen that are adult-themed in a way that yeah, it may not be safe for work and certainly not ideal for children. Not as bad as Threads, but... <laughs> Still, something I feel that we need to give a bit of warning about. But Threads wasn't burned in like school book burnings and things like that, so maybe Threads is better. More, threads, more friendly. Maybe Threads is just not as well known. <laughs> Slaughterhouse-Five is by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. It is a book that could be classified as science fiction. It deals in a way with time travel, but not really. It also deals a very tiny way with aliens, but not really. It doesn't really fit one genre, I feel like. It could be drama, it could be humor, it could be science fiction. I kind of feel like the best way to describe it is all three. Yeah, this is one of these classic books that everyone's like, oh, have you read this book? And so when I heard it was science fiction, it's not science fiction isn't really a genre that I'm totally into, but... I was looking forward to reading this and watching the movie, but yeah, it's not, in my opinion, it's not really science fiction. I was going in expecting Star Trek and like, you know... Wait, just so like, was this the first time that you've read it then? Yeah, yeah. I definitely don't remember this. I thought I had read it at school maybe, but nah, I've not read this before. And I'm, I'm using the word read very loosely. I actually listened to the audiobook for this, which is was quite interesting. It was read by Ethan Hawke. Really? Yeah. Okay. Would you recommend listening to it? Was he a good narrator. He was okay. I, I saw there were two versions of them and I listened to both of them. The one that I listened to, the one that I ended up listening to, which I thought was better, was the one by Ethan Hawke, which still wasn't great, but it was better than the other one that was by James Franco. <laughs> Not the number one choice I would have picked for narrating yeah, Slaughterhouse Five. I, I yeah. did not like him in that one. But yeah, this is my second audiobook. I did this one on oh no, a third, I guess. I've done Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas which was really, that's probably my favorite one. It was narrated by Harry Dean Stanton. Really good. He was like perfect for it. The other one was Blood Meridian, which was uh, narrated by Richard Poe. That was also very good. I would not recommend that because that just ruins your day. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there you go. Ethan Hawke. I'm a strong, I think, proponent for listening to the audiobook counts as reading. Oh, really? Okay. So, because I, I, don't, I don't know much about that whole Some people feel culture. very strongly the other way. I feel very strongly for it should be counted. I mean, it takes a lot of focus. Let me put it that way. I cannot do the dishes and listen to this. I have to sit down and just listen to it. I think that there is that difference. I think that it comes to, are you giving it as much attention as you would if you're reading the text? Right. If you are, then... I consider it reading. If you're just putting it on the background and not actually really listening to it, maybe not. But if you skip through the book and don't really read it, you're also not really reading the book. So I strongly believe that if you're still taking in the content, you're still reading. And for some people who have reading difficulties, this is the best way for them to take in a book. So I'm totally for that. I'm not going to argue 
against saying you read it. But did you listen to both of them all the way through, or did you try them both out to see which one you liked? I tried them both out, because I, I started out with the James Franco one. I just thought to myself, I, just, I don't like it. I don't like the way that he's done this. I'll have to give the other one a try. So the Ethan Hawke one, he's very, I don't know, what's the word? Like, he's very wishy-washy and like kind of listful. He's like, very whispers a lot, but he's chosen a weird style to read the book in. Okay, it's just very interesting. I don't know why... You didn't choose one that's just by a normal book narrator, or did that? Oh, not I don't. Up? I don't. Yeah, I have no okay. idea if that was even an option. <laughs> I suspect this one is popular enough that there would be a version that is just done by a you know somebody who that's their job. Yeah, but I think you not not a bad choice. The book came out in 1969. It was, I believe, during the Vietnam War time, so it is very much an anti-war book. I, I think I can say that without really spoiling too much. I do want people to be aware of that. I do think it's also very interesting that the book came out in 69 and the movie came out in 72. Like that's a very quick turnaround. Yeah. The movie is very good, but I do think the movie is a bit harder to follow than the book. Yeah. I mean, how do you want to do that? Do you want to just like well, do them one at a time or do you want to do them kind of together where they cross over? I would say do it kind of together. I think we both agreed we were going to talk more about the book. So we'll focus on the book and maybe hit differences as we come to them. Mm-hmm. Or I could just talk about the movie. But I have six pages of notes on the book. So right. <laughs> that's probably what I'm going to go from. And I probably, even with those six pages of notes, I probably won't get everything And I probably won't say everything that's in my notes. There's so much. I mean, there's a reason why this is taught so much. There are so many bits of symbolism. There are so many connections that you can make. And the timeline is very confusing, especially when it comes to the movie, which is why I thought it would be a fantastic pick for us to talk about, because it's the kind of thing we talk about. I would say it's probably best to read the book and then watch the movie. That's what I did. The movie is very good, but there are times where... It jumps so quickly that it's hard to keep track of. Or... I find it the opposite. I would say the book jumped more. Yeah. I thought what they did in the movie was they streamlined a lot of those jumps very well. They did, but I feel like with the book, there are a lot more clues as to exactly what time you're in and where you are and what's going on. Whereas in the movie, sometimes you jump in and jump out. And the first time I watched it, I wasn't exactly sure what some of those things were. Oh, yeah. There's even bits where it's only like three or four seconds. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And you can have that in the book where you have one paragraph. But in that paragraph, it clearly states, you know, this is the timeline. It was Bobby's birthday or whatever. Yeah. You know, something like that. And that's why I think the book is better to start with, but choose your poison. Right. You can read the book or if you're going to watch the movie only, then I'd say be prepared to watch it twice because... The first time you'll get it, but the second time you'll really get it. Even though I think they did a fantastic job with it, I think that they did as good of an adaptation as I ever could have asked for with the movie, with maybe one exception, but we'll get into that in the spoiler section. I recommend it. Would you still recommend it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed both the book and the movie. Yeah. And with that, I think it's time that we actually get into it. So if you've not read Slaughterhouse-Five or watched Slaughterhouse-Five, now may be the time to go do that. And then come back, because we're headed into the spoiler section. Chapter one. Uh You told me when you were listening to it that you had a bit of difficulty getting into the story. Yeah. And I suspect it was because of chapter one. It might be, and probably is. But now looking back, I, I kind of appreciate chapter one. There's a lot that goes into it that you 
probably don't realize the first time. Yeah, yeah. Because when I was reading it or listening to it, however you want to put it. I would say you choose a way. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I mean, I, I like the idea of this guy going to find an old war buddy to discuss the Dresden bombing for his book. That he was in. And he was he was in that. And, and I think he was in it in real life as well, yeah? Yes. That's why I think that the first chapter pretty much is autobiographical. Right. I think that that part is true. Yeah. Or true enough. Yeah. I mean, maybe not the, the looting execution thing. I don't know. I don't know how much is embellished, but he was definitely there. Yes. Yeah. And that's part of what I think adds to the realism of that. And the fact that he discusses it, but it's not in great detail. He doesn't go minute by minute or hour by hour through all the horrors, but just an overall general description. And that's part of why I think a book like Slaughterhouse-Five is so much easier for me to get into than a history book, which will go into tons of detail. This gives me just enough and in a way that actually makes me feel connected to it that I probably wouldn't if I was just getting the kind of dates and facts and those kinds of things. This brought me in there in a way that a textbook couldn't. Yeah, even for me as well, I'd never heard of this. And he says that in the book, no one's really even heard of this. More people died in Dresden than died in the bombing at uh, Hiroshima, but nobody talks about this. And I'd never heard of it. So I looked it up and I said, oh, wow, this is this is real. This, is, this happened and it was pretty brutal. That whole city had nothing to do with war. That was the whole reason that they were getting taken off there as POWs was because this is probably this area where you're the safest and it turned out to be the most deadly. Really, really horrifying stuff. But no, I do appreciate the first chapter now because I thought it was going to be more of this when I was reading it. I thought it's going to be like this the whole way through, but it gets to a point where it's just like, okay, now it's the book that he's writing comes in into play and yeah that was and that was because i was waiting where's the science fiction coming in like where's the (laughs) when's this coming in but that's the thing it is very autobiographical especially the first chapter and it talks about him returning to dresden with his old war buddy bernard o'hare the book is dedicated to his wife mary o'hare which we get that bit of story from vonnegut about her bustling about in the kitchen and not being very happy that he was there Hmm. And it's because she thought he was going to write a book that was glorifying war. And in fact, he wants to write a book which is just the opposite. Yeah. And then she became his great friend after that and very welcoming. Yeah. There's a powerful bit that as well when they're both talking. There's a really great, I don't know if it's in this chapter or if it was in a later chapter, but there's a really good line. And I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember it. I should, I should have written it down. He basically says something along the line of the people who have experienced war and who know what war is are the people who do not want to talk about it. And it's really dark and it's really true. For the people that have really experienced what it's like, they're the ones that they just switch off whenever someone wants to talk about it. And they're no, no, my point was because that's, that's who O'Hare is. He's like, he goes there to visit him and O'Hare's just really unhelpful and says he can't remember, he doesn't know what happened. Well, but neither of them at that point can really remember. They they were going to have all these stories, right. and then they didn't. Vonnegut brings alcohol, but... He doesn't drink he anymore. He doesn't drink anymore. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, just a very real feeling bit of... If he made that up, it's amazing. Right. Because it just seems very, very real. But they remembered a couple things, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they mentioned going back to Germany and meeting this taxi driver 
who the book is also dedicated to, who had been a POW on the other side, right? and talking about how things have changed since the war and everything. That's also just a very interesting story and connection and the way it's used. And what I really appreciate about Vonnegut is his voice that he uses, the interesting turns of phrases he can always come up with, the connections that he makes, but also just the succinctness of it. This book is only about 186 pages. The text isn't tiny. There are a couple pages that are just hand-drawn pictures that he did, but he gets so much into such a small book. Right. And it's very impressive. There are a couple of things in the opening chapter that are set up for the rest of the book. So one is poor old Edgar Derby. We're going to get more about him. He, I think, is a one of the huge improvements the movie made right? by giving him much more of a character mm-hmm. and putting that together. <laughs> it's not a huge book, but I do feel like there are so many references to Edgar Derby and how he's going to die at the end right? without really giving it to us mm-hmm. that the book, ju- it just falls a bit short there. And I never really feel connected to Edgar Derby, but in the movie, boy, do I. Yeah, he's it's a great totally character different. in the movie. Uh, and also one of the few actors I would actually recognize. Yeah, I didn't recognize anyone really in that. I, di- I do recognize Edgar, but I can't place him from what I've seen him in. He was in a ton of stuff, especially for me in the 80s. Probably 80s TV shows I've seen him in. He had recurring roles in things like Magnum P.I. Right, that's probably Night Court. Uh, did you ever watch Webster? Was that your thing? Oh, that rings a bell. He was in that for a few seasons, I think. Right, okay. But Magnum, I definitely remember. Yeah, some of that. So he was in a few episodes of so many things. He's one of those actors that has 144 credits, (laughs) but many of them are just bit parts or kind of recurring roles in a sitcom, but he wasn't the main one. Webster, he would have been for a while. So that's what I recognize him from. The other one would probably be, uh, I think her name is Valerie Perrine. Is that the... Montana Wild? Yeah, she looked familiar. But she was in Superman the movie, uh, sort of Lex Luthor's girlfriend. You might right, from. Ah, yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, there you go. Yeah. And now she's naked. <laughs> but, hey, we 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 said there'd be just not, not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> True, but again, just not, um, not the most important point <laughs> for you. All right, another thing that is recurring is this idea of the poem. Or kind of limerick, whatever it is, where my name is Jan Janssen, I'm from Wisconsin, and it leads to him just starting that over again, and so on, and so on, and so on, leading into the whole concept throughout the book, throughout the story, and just war itself is something that happens over and over again. It's always the same, and it will never end. He also had a great line, something about... And so it goes. Well, that as well, but... And so it goes is something that's a little bit different. Mm. That's just... He basically mentions that every time someone dies yes. or something dies. And in fact, I counted it out. I think it's 102 if I counted correctly. I went on Wikipedia and it says, you're close. It says 106. Gosh, I must have missed something. <laughs> I wonder where I missed them. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it's not 106. It's 106 occurrences. Right. But some of them are doubled Doubles. up. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Edgar Derby, every time he gets mentioned, I think, so it goes. But I love, I love that. And that's what's missing from the movie is they don't do the Wisconsin limerick and they don't do the end so it goes. The Wisconsin limerick part 
I can do without that part. But the and so it goes, but it's so powerful in the book because it's like a bell tolling every time someone dies. And it's a really important line, I think. But it's missing from the movie because they've completely removed the narrator entirely from the movie, which is a big thing. But I get it because it simplifies the movie and makes it easier and more, I don't know, like digestible, I suppose. It would be too heavy. But it works. And here's, well, let's go ahead and just talk movie real quick before I jump back into that point. So George Roy Hill, who directed it, also directed movies like The Sting, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, tons of, I mean, he didn't direct a ton of movies, but most of the movies he did, you would recognize and go, oh, wow. That's classic. A classic. Yeah. And so it's, it's no shock to me that he came in and was able to make this work. Right. So things that were changed, Edgar Derby got a much better character put together. I think the same is true of Valencia. She's kind of in the story, but not really. And I really felt like she was given a full, kind of a more full depth in the movie. I do think, though, in the book, when he tells her she doesn't need to lose weight because he knows she's never going to anyway, that's kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, it's just kind of sad because she says it over and over again. (laughs) But I liked her character, though. I mean, that was kind of like a, a romance that was, I don't know, I, I felt like it wasn't cynical. It was a weird, it was It was almost like he just married into money, he'd married into a career, he, his father-in-law is super, super rich, they're taking private jets, but he never takes advantage of it because he's just, but he is, he's such a boring guy. <laughs> and it, I, I guess that that's part of the point of the whole book is that he's not the superhero, secret agent, brave, buff Hero character, he's just this really dull, not, not ophthalmologist. Is he an ophthalmologist? No, what is he? Optometrist. He's an optometrist, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, he's just <laughs> this really boring guy. But he seems to love his wife, although he does seem to love that dog a bit more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, again, that's more added into the movie than yeah. the book. Because one thing I noticed that, that hit me with the book versus the movie was, in the movie as well, they do a good job of showing the baby's birth, but he's really not interested at all. And in fact, he doesn't. He gets kicked out of the house because the dog pees on her leg or right. something like that. But at the end, when Montana has the baby, he's like all over it, and he's like a dad now. It's almost like he's had a second chance at life. Honestly, yeah. I mean, this podcast could end up turning into like a four-hour. We might. <laughs> we'll, we'll try not to. We might be our Rise of Skywalker limit. <laughs> Force Awakens. Oh God. Force Awakens. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is they do get rid of the narrator, and that was done very, very well. They still kept some of those elements when he is typing, when Billy is typing at the typewriter at the very beginning. He says the words, I became unstuck in time, or I am unstuck in time. So that phrase is still there. Unstuck in time is still there. And that's the thing. In the movie, they found a way to get quite a lot of the dialogue in there that was directly taken from the book. You have things like Lazaro comes in much, much earlier, but it works. It actually makes his connection to Roland Weary a bit stronger. Right. Otherwise, he just met him on the train. But I do think that's kind of the point in the book is that he wants revenge, even though he has nothing to hold against him. Just the other guy's word. Yeah, he's an absolute psycho in the movie. But I don't know. He was more of a... I don't know what kind of character he was in the book. He was more just a bully in the book. Lazaro or Weary? Lazaro. Uh, that dog story is in both. Yeah. Like word for word yeah, yeah, in both. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's true. That's true. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. He seems like he's all talk, but he's clearly not. Mm. Which, <laughs> Well, that's very clear at the end. Yeah. 
But the uh, was there anything else about the movie that jumped out at you at the moment? Well, the the thing would be with Edgar though, and I I kind of want to get to that mm-hmm. towards the end. So okay. remind me, yeah. so I don't forget. But there's something just really really good about what they do with Edgar that we didn't get in the book. Yeah. All right, going back to the book, just the first chapter. The other things Vonnegut is going to tell you what the first and last lines of the book are. It will start with Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time, and it's going to end with Putiwit, which we have already been told in the introduction that that is what a bird says after massacre, because what else are you going to say? And it signifies the kind of pointlessness that there's no real good thing to say after something so horrible. Right. And it will come up a couple times throughout the book. And that's true with a lot. Like I said, part of the reason why I like this book and a lot of his books is that he makes these connections throughout the book and he'll make running ideas that go throughout the book. Chapter two is where I put the story really begins. Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. We get a very quick overview of Billy's life from birth I think up to death or pretty close to it, mm-hmm. even including the Trophimadorians and what happened there and the fact that they can see in 4D. I think that this is really smart. I think this is really useful because this gives you the overview before you jump into the story and before the timeline becomes mixed. Right. It also gives you a quick guide if you need to go back to it to say, where would this have been in his life? Right. And so I really appreciate that. I think that that's very clever. That is something that I feel is missing a bit from the movie, is that you don't get that overview right away. I'm not sure they could have made that work, a quick overview. Maybe they tried it and it didn't. The way the movie is is good, though. So I'm not going to argue against it. But in the book form, I found that very helpful. Right. How did you feel listening to it? Was that kind of boring to listen to? Did you not quite understand what was going on at that point? No, no, it was fine. It was okay. And like you said at the the very beginning, it's like, yeah, if, if you're not paying attention, then it's not reading, you know? So I sat down with nothing in front of me and just listened to this. Well, I didn't listen to it. I didn't listen to it in bed. I didn't listen to it when I was occupied. So yeah, everything kind of was coming to me with full focus, you know? So, yeah, everything made sense. Even all the jumping around, like, there's a lot of bouncing around, just basically. Billy will just close his eyes, and he's like, I'm here now. That's what he says. He tells you where he is. He never once says, where am I? Or maybe he does at some point. Well, I think Billy doesn't always know where he is at the moment, but Vonnegut always does. Right. As he's telling the story. So he will often tell you, as I said before, he will give you the year or how old Billy is, or he'll give you some reference to give you an idea. Right. The other smart thing that he does is that outside of the one last scene, the last chapter, as far as I can tell, all of the war bits go in order. Right. So there is one timeline that goes in order that you can follow. And it makes sense because that is the core of what the book is about, is about the war. And And leading up to that moment. Yeah. So it makes sense, but it also gives us as the reader a flow to follow. Because if we didn't have that, if that was also jumbled, then I think it would be a much more confusing story to follow. It's like a rope, basically, that runs through the darkness of the cave kind of thing that you can kind of hold on to. After the overview, we're going to start following Billy. We start as he's writing his second letter about the Trophimadorians. Barbara is there. She's trying to... I forget the way Vonnegut put it. It was quite clever. It was something about she feels important because she's taking care of him. And she's controlling him with love or something like that. You know, it's through love 
but it makes her feel important. Mm -hmm. And understandably, she thinks he's losing his mind. He had just lost his wife. He'd been in a plane accident. He was acting very strange and talking about aliens. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> Isn't that one thing that they don't do in the book as well, is they don't have, in the book, the alien part is just like glossed, not not glossed over, but there's no, none of this like, dad, you're going mad stuff. Like, there's not the part where he goes down to the radio station and starts like... Yeah, it is. Is it in the movie? Oh, is it in the movie? Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I think all that oh, kind of okay. stuff is, is not in the movie either. I think that's only in the book. Yeah, I think that that... He definitely didn't go to the radio station. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but he did write the letters because she's coming and complaining about why you're writing these letters, yeah. and her husband is also saying we're worried about you, that kind of yeah. thing. We actually get to see him, uh, Stanley, I think his name is Barbara's husband. He has a few lines and a bit of a role in the movie, but he's pretty much non-existent in the book. Yeah, Vonnegut will say here that Billy thinks of the Trophimadorian information like he thinks of corrective lenses. That if only people knew about life the way he knew about it, that the moments just happen and that you can't control them or change it. And that people, when they die, are not really dead because they're always alive at some point. Mm -hmm. He thinks if people just understand that, then a lot of people will feel better. Which I think is what they're trying to express when he's at the end giving that speech like the end of his life is that people did respond to it. Right. We're then going to hear a bit about his start in the war. So he was, I think, drafted, drafted into the yeah. war. I, I'm not sure that it says that in the book, but it definitely says that in the movie. Yeah. That he was drafted. He gets some time off because his father dies, so it goes, mm -hmm. in a hunting accident. And so he ends up being sent directly to war with just his funeral shoes on and... No gun, totally unprepared. He's not even really a proper soldier. He's a chaplain's assistant. Yeah. So he's just supposed to take, as the book described it, some sort of portable altar. <laughs> and there are just some other things that he describes very well, what you should be taking. He doesn't even get to meet the chaplain he's supposed to be working with because he arrives during the Battle of the Bulge mm -hmm. and ends up behind enemy lines and tags along with these two scouts and this tank gunner who's loud and obnoxious and wearing absolutely everything the army and his family has ever sent. So he's got scarves and two hats and, and he's sweating away. Yeah. And here's where the book really gives us more about Roland Weary talking about the fact that he was always being ditched. Nobody really liked him, which just made him feel worse. So he always had some sort of weak crony to basically torture since nobody else seemed to like him. Yeah. And so that's why he's talking to Billy about torture and this is what a bayonet is and this is why it's the shape it is. And they do that dialogue in the movie, but you don't really get to know Roland Weary in the movie the way you do in the book because he just has these grandiose ideas of he and the scouts are going to be the three amigos and they're going to stay together uh, forever. The three musketeers. That's it. Three musketeers. And they're going to stay forever together. And Boy, that changes quickly. Yeah. <laughs> As the scouts ditch them and yeah. decide to head off. Yeah. But that's in the book a lot. Mm -hmm. The way people envision their life and envision themselves and how it doesn't match the reality. Yeah. 
And I think that's that's a big part of what the philosophy of this book is, is that maybe he's trying to say that if you could see yourself from beginning, middle and end, then maybe we would be better people. Because the philosophy of that book is like, okay, if everything's all, always existed and has always existed and will always exist in that period of time, then all the bad stuff also exists. It's not just the good stuff. And so all the wars and deaths repeat forever. Because he did, he became a pacifist after the war. The good thing about the audiobook is there's a nice little interview at the end with Vonnegut. It's not long, it's only about 15 minutes. But it's him and another, I think maybe another war buddy that he's got. And they're talking about their time. And yeah, I think he became like a an ultra pacifist after Dresden. Uh, definitely. You could also read his book, uh, Man Without a Country, where it's much more him talking about that and his kind of philosophy on life. Okay. Because yeah, the whole point of this book is basically... Is there, well, to me, is, is there free will? And I think that they even mention that by name in the book. And that's, that's the big thing. I think it's the Tralfamadorians that say, like, you, out of all of the worlds we've visited and all and the, looked uh, at. Yeah. And studied, you're the only ones that think you've got free will. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. We're also going to, at this point, well, we talk about Weary. He also envisions the way he's going to describe all the great battles on the way home. Vonnegut's already told us that. The tank he was in fired and missed, so the other tank just turned and shot them. Yeah. And Weary survived. But in his head, oh, they were battling it out, and they were such glory. He's such a glory-hungry person. Yeah. But we get to Billy resting, and this is kind of, for me, where he really starts to become unstuck in time, and we're going to leap into a time where he sees his whole life, and at the end, there's violet light and a hum, Mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah. We're going to see his death, his pre-birth, the day his father wanted to teach him to swim by just throwing him in the pool, the sink or swim method. Yeah. Yeah. In 1965, he's in his mother's nursing home, and he finds this book about a man shot in the war for cowardice. I guess it's the last man shot for this. And the mother asks, how? How did I get so old? Which is just... Very sad. Yeah, it was very sad because his mum's in a in a hospital as well, isn't she? She's like a nursing home, a I nursing think. Home, yeah. yeah, just when I saw that though, I was like, "Oh, is she a time traveler as well? Is this going to be part of the book?" And this is where I went in with weird expectations because this has always been built for me as like a big sci-fi novel, and it seemed to me like imagine if it would be to me like if Murakami wrote a sci-fi novel or something like that. It would just be like someone who doesn't write science fiction just puts in a little bit of science fiction into one of their books. That's what this is. It's not a science fiction novel for me at all. But when I saw that, when she's like, how did I get so old? Oh, she suddenly time jumped or something like that. You know, I'm already trying to create new stories in my brain. Well, that's part of why I wanted to talk about Slaughterhouse-Five. I don't want to get into it too much, but there are a lot of other movies about people who become unstuck in time. Mm. And for me, this was one of the first I'd ever seen it. Right. I know that other stories are older where they've maybe done it once but not like this where it's so random how it jumps around or it feels random how it's just jumping throughout his whole life not just one instance and others have done it now but for me slaughterhouse five was the one where i saw it first it is a cool idea though as well as even if we could live forever this is another maybe just stupid tangent i'm going off on here but even if we could live forever you would eventually forget what you'd done if you could live that long you wouldn't have clear memories of your life anyway. So what would be the point of living forever? But in, in Slaughterhouse-Five, how cool would it be to actually go back and live 
your memories as you slip through time and just go back to those over and over again rather than remember them. You're not even visiting them. You're reliving them again. It's quite, quite cool. In 1958, he's at his son's Little League banquet. 1961, he's drunk at a New Year's Eve party for basically mostly optometrists. He's having his one sort of affair or scandalous moment with a lady in the laundry room of the house. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. He gets... <laughs> that bit was so funny as well. Because, again, this book is quite comical in places as well. This part really cracked me up because he's, he goes into his car and he's, like, looking for the wheel of his car. And then he goes over inch by inch, basically, trying to find the steering wheel. Then and he comes to the conclusion that someone's stolen it. And it's like, oh, he was in the back seat. Right. <laughs> Really brilliantly done. It's also in this that we find out he doesn't go by William, he goes by Billy because it was his father-in-law's idea. His father-in-law is very good at business, said Billy's going to make you seem like you're very friendly right from the start. Yeah, she's like, Billy makes you seem more trustworthy and... Just as he's not being trustworthy. Yeah. (laughs) But he's going to wake up back in World War II. The scouts are going to leave Weary and Billy behind. I don't blame them. Yeah. Billy keeps saying, leave me behind. He's not really paying attention. I think because he knows he's going to survive. Yeah, I think So he doesn't right. have to be worried about it. Yeah, because he's, he's already seen it, hasn't he? But that other guy's like, kick you all the way to the end. Because, again, he wants this glory and he wants to be this hero that saved this poor little mouse. So it doesn't But instead, well he becomes the villain. Yeah. By leading to his death. Billy, in 1957, is made president of the local Lions Club at a Chinese restaurant. He gives a great speech, which... I guess he had been taking some lessons, which is why he became a better speaker, which is good to know for the end. It explains why he can explain things so well and speak to a crowd. Yeah. Back to war. Weary is beating up Billy as the Germans are watching, and Billy is laughing, probably because he's mentally not in the war yet. He's probably at a different time. But also here in the book, now this doesn't really happen in the movie, but in the book, Weary is the one who tips them off because he hits his helmet on the tree and the dogs hear it, but he doesn't know. Ah, okay. I missed that. But there's also the whole issue of the Germans at this point that find them are just young boys and really old men. They have a dog, but it isn't a trained dog. It's a dog they just borrowed from a farmer. Their shots heard that we'll be told the shots heard are the scouts dying off in the distance. So, yeah, it was smart to leave them, but then they actually got shot, whereas Billy and Weary actually live. Yeah. They're going to steal Weary's boots, give him these hinged wooden clogs, which are going to just totally destroy his feet. It's going to lead to gangrene, and he will die on the train, as many do. Billy, and this is something that wasn't really covered as much in the movie, but he's wearing these funeral shoes, these dress shoes, but a heel is broken. So he's walking up and down, up and down. down. But because of that, he's often bumping into Weary and everything. Whereas in the movie, he's doing that because he's looking at the pretty girls in the window instead. And this is also why part of the reason Lazaro gets angry at him. They're taken to a stone cottage with other POWs. We jump to 1967. Billy is sleeping at work in his optometry office while a customer is on the other side of this owl, this (laughs) device. And in this case, he doesn't know the time, the year, his age. He has to look around for clues to decide where he is. He thinks, where have all the years gone? Which is very similar to what his mother said. Yeah. And this is part of what I like about the way Vonnegut does these type of things, is he gives you these connections, but he often gives them to you quick enough that 
you don't have to know the whole book to catch them. Right. You just have to be paying attention. Billy is going to be simultaneously smiling for a photo shoot, I think, for his daughter's wedding, but also this photo shoot that they're mocking up for him being captured by the Germans. Yeah. Which was done very well in the movie. Yeah. Where he's just like got this big cheesy grin on his face. <laughs> he's, a, he's a POW now, but he's just got this massive grin. He's then also, like, after that, we cut to him unenthusiastically listening to a speech about bombing Vietnam and how important that is, and he does not care. Mm -hmm. We are told in the book that the Serenity poem is very important to Billy, and it will come up a few times. And it fits very well with the theme, the whole idea of understanding what I can change and living with what I can't change. But in Billy's viewpoint, by the end of his life anyway, he's going to realize he can't change anything. Right. And so he's just going to have to become serene with the whole concept of life as it's happened. Mm -hmm. But that's very fitting for him. So it works. I still like free will. But for Billy, it works. I mean, even Vonnegut at the end of the book, he says, I'm not sure that I really like that for me. And I'm not sure that I, I want to have that kind of life. But if it is, it is. Mm-hmm. We're going to end up getting to the railroad. The railroad scene takes a lot longer in the book. There's right. a lot more details about having to stand while others sleep because there's not enough space for all of them. All the soldiers are spooning together because they need the heat. Mm-hmm. They are having to take all their food in through the ventilator area and all the excrement goes out of the ventilator area, which is passed from helmets to Billy in the corner, who's one of the quote-unquote dumpers. Yeah. Uh, there's that wild, was it Wild Bob, the colonel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who's <laughs> going a bit crazy and saying, oh, come meet me in Cody, Wyoming. Yeah, just ask for Wild Bob. <laughs> yeah, but Vonnegut does this very well where he says something like he's dying of pneumonia at the moment, so he's actually flooding in his own body while he's standing there. Right. And boy, in the movie... He just has a snot that comes off. Yeah, him. yeah. It's very real. <laughs> There's a hobo that's saying, ah, oh, this ain't so bad. It's not so bad, but he will die. Yeah. And we will see his frozen corpse alone and lonely when he leaves the camp as well. Yeah. There's just so much to this scene throughout its many instances. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to get there. It talks about how the train is moving at about two miles per hour and it stops for any other train that needs to come through. Yeah. But it also connects in the fact that there is the, I think it's orange and white stripes Mm -hmm. of the flag that says this is a POW train, don't attack it. And then those are the same colors for his daughter's wedding tent. Right, yeah. We're also going to be given through this the contrast of the POWs and how they're just packed in there. And then just railroad guards who live and work on the railroad and the trains have what seemed like heaven in the back because they each had their own bed, they had a meal, and they had a stove to keep warm. Right. And that alone at that time seemed like heaven. It was so amazing when normally that wouldn't exactly be considered luxurious. (laughs) But I think he even contrasts it with the second train ride that they take to Dresden. Half as full and he's describing all the like open space that they've got and stuff. And so yeah, that the train ride is definitely there for it serves a purpose for sure. Yeah. And Billy apparently kicks and screams in his sleep. 
so he's not allowed to sleep with anyone. He has to sleep standing up or not at all. But they're going to arrive, and when they arrive, they're given coats. Billy's given like a I fur coat that's too small. <laughs> Which I understood in the book, but boy, in the movie, does it just bring it home when you physically see what they give him. Yeah. And how much they're laughing at him. And just when he puts it on immediately, it rips. rips yeah. Whereas in the book, it doesn't do that for a very long time. The colors ivory and blue you're going to see come up a lot. Seems to symbolize death or unhealth. Billy, very early on when he's writing that letter that we saw at the beginning of his story, or well, in the book, yeah. his feet are those colors. The hobo's feet are going to be those colors, I think, when they find him frozen on the way back out again. You're just going to see that a lot. And pretty much any time that happens, you're going to see that. Another good example of bringing those things through would be the opening chapter when he, Vonnegut is talking about himself getting drunk at night, having breath that smells like mustard gas and roses, and trying to call up old people that he hasn't talked to in a long time old friends or war buddies or old girlfriends. Yeah. But then towards the end of the book, we're going to hear him talk about the corpses rotting when they were digging them up, smell like mustard gas and roses. That's, it's just another time where he does that, where he connects things through. Yeah. And it's repeated quite a lot. Yeah. In chapter four, we're going to see Billy on his daughter's wedding night. Billy can't sleep. <laughs> he goes downstairs and somebody has recorked some champagne, but when he pops it open, there are no bubbles. It's dead, so it goes. So it goes. <laughs> there are a few so it goes in there that just really made me laugh. Yeah. And that's one of them. I think this is the first one where it was just a mocking way of doing it. Mm -hmm. They even get a so it goes for the like the steaks and stuff like that as well, don't yeah. they? <laughs> like, for the cows that died. <laughs> There's a full moon. I think this is the night where he's going to be abducted, mm -hmm. which is also very interesting because in the book, he's taken now, but in the movie, he's taken after his wife dies. Right. Which I think simplifies the, I'm not cheating on my wife mm -hmm. because it's happened after she's already died. Whereas in the book, it's like, well, he is, but he isn't because time means nothing to him. Right. But <laughs> They also, in the movie, they seem to be checking him out a couple times before they pick him up. They do, yeah. Because there's that one time when he's sitting outside with the dog and the light comes, but then just kind of goes away. Yeah. Billy is asking, why me? Why did you choose me? And they're going to respond, why anything? It just is. That's their viewpoint on everything. Mm -hmm. So Billy is in the saucer with a lot of things stolen from Sears and Roebuck, which are going to furnish his yeah. zoo cage. <laughs> I do wonder, is this the first reference to a human zoo? I think probably not, but it, it, it's one of the earliest ones I, I know of that really hit me like yeah. this. We end up back in the boxcar. The train is still creeping by, but as it stops at each prison, it sheds a couple boxcars. So by the time that Billy's gets to the end, it's only a few cars now. It's not yeah. what it was. Billy at this point is getting very sick. And he's coughing and having diarrhea slip out at the same time. It's very disgusting. Mm. We're going to be led into the prison. The scalding hot showers, which don't seem to give you any real warmth. The coats that need to be deloused. <laughs> so all so, the bugs so, are dead. So so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but talking about just... And this is something I got it in the book. But boy, in the movie, 
when the British soldiers come out dancing and singing. I thought that was great. It's great, but wow, does it just show the difference in who they are. Because you've got the Russians who are just like at the fence, just like zombies, like the walking dead. And then the doors just burst open on stage right and the British army walks through and they're all (laughs) singing this song that they've rehearsed. It's fantastic. I love it. But the guy's explanation is great. He's like, what was it he says? He says, like, I made myself like three promises. One, brush my teeth twice a day. Wash my hands every time I go to the bathroom and before supper or whatever. And move my bowels as much as possible. 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 And it's like, yeah, just this, like, you can see, like, the morale difference. Basically, I mean, what what would you take away from that? It's like, yeah, it's just no matter what your situation is, it's, you've always got to try and take care of yourself, I guess, is what, what they're trying to say, maybe? Uh, well, I think that's what they're trying to say. But I think you need to see this as the contrast between people who have been sitting in a prison feeling like they're trapped, but they actually had a literal ton of every kind of food they could ever need. Oh, yeah. And they go into great detail in the book about how much of this they've got yes. and how much of this they've got. And-, and how much they can bribe German officers to get some other things. Yeah. They've basically survival gamed their whole area out of empty tin cans. They've rat-proofed the sheds where the stuff is stored. They've created all their own thing. They've learned and mastered like chess and cribbage right, and yeah. everything. It's just... I don't know. It just kind of feels like the, it's like the great escape, mm-hmm. the movie and the spirit they wanted to have that pro positive spirit versus the actual soldiers who are in it, who are so miserable and they have no energy and they've just been stuck on this train for like a week where it was moving two miles per hour and they haven't had heat. They haven't had food. They're all sick. Yeah. And these British soldiers hate them for getting sick <laughs> when they've probably given them too much food after not having had any or they're just all sick from other things that they've picked up. Yeah. And so many people have died along the way. So Weary died on the train and in the book that's just told to us that he died and that Lazaro has picking up the vengeance torch for him. Whereas in the movie this is done very well because Lazarus is there holding his head as he dies mm-hmm. and talking to him. So it's a bit better. There's a bit more meaning to it. But in the book, and this is the thing I think with the book, is that it's trying to point out the pointlessness of a lot of this. Yeah. Whereas the movie kind of gave more point to it. Mm-hmm. Billy's going to become very sick. And so he's just going to pass out and miss out on most of like the dinner he sees some of this Cinderella show, yeah. but then he starts screaming about halfway through. And I don't know if they're trying to say that this is like, is he suffering PTSD already? Right. Or is this a time jump thing that we, we don't see where he's jumping when he's screaming? We don't know. In the movie, it's just that the British soldier is giving that speech way earlier than he did in the book and stopping Billy from eating. And Billy just passes out in his suit. That's right, yeah. The other weird thing was, though, they made such a big deal of that jacket. They gave you that jacket to humiliate you, you know, and that's not on and blah, 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 blah. Yet, they give them this ridiculous pair of silver boots. <laughs> yes. Like, so, there's definitely uh, some some symbolism there as well. Like He just takes them because that's all he can find. Yeah. But, yeah, in the movie, here they are. This is for you. Yeah. <laughs> and poor Billy, in the book, he's 
just wrapping himself up in these light curtains because that's all he has for warmth. Yeah. And just wearing that ridiculous jacket is more like a muff around his hands to keep them warm. When we do some connections here, the delousing and the rough shower, Billy thinks back to when and becomes a baby being bathed by his mother. That's very sweet. So he can, it seems, sometimes jump into a time which is more pleasant and get him through the rough times, which you could say that a lot of people do through memories. They're remembering the good times to get them through the bad times. Yeah. And for others, like Weary and a few others, they imagine a better future to get them through the times. But nobody during the rough times is where they actually are mentally. Nobody wants to be there, at least, right? We're going to jump now a bit into Chapter 5, where we're told about Trophimadorians, how they see all time at once. Humans look like millipedes with baby legs at one end and old men legs at the other. That's really cool. I like that idea. (laughs) Stars look like glowing spaghetti. But really, I think they'd more look like circles based on photographs I've seen. Right. But I do think that it's just a really cool concept. I don't know how it really works, but I don't think that we have to. We're also, I think it's here where we're told what they look like. Maybe that's later, but I'll just say it now. So how they look like a plunger with a hand at the top with an eye in the middle of the hand, I think. (laughs) A plunger. (laughs) We don't, well, he's called a plumber's friend in the book, but I know what he's talking about. Yeah. We're going to time slip here to the Grand Canyon, and Billy is so afraid of falling that he ends up peeing his pants. We also see him the same trip going to Carlsbad Caverns and experiencing total darkness for the first time, and his dad's radium glowing watch that turns on. Now, I didn't know what they were trying to say here, what Vonnegut was saying here. He could be saying that the dad is so bored that he doesn't care about what's going on around him. Could be saying that his father is actually a bit afraid himself. Right. That he's not perfect. But the interesting connection is that when Billy kind of wakes up and runs out to pee because he has to so badly and he gets caught up in this barbed wire, there is a Russian whose face in the darkness reminds him of his father's watch. Mm -hmm. Because the same description, like his face glowed like a radium watch or something like that. And the Russian just kind of helps him slowly get out and the bill is just going to pee right there, but then he's going to go to the latrine because he doesn't know where to go. So he's just kind of stumbling towards sound and all the Americans are dying or saying they're dying. And in fact, Vonnegut is here because that was me. <laughs> Something about like, oh, I've excreted everything but my brains. <laughs> oh, there they go. There they go. <laughs> he goes, that was me, the author of this book. <laughs> So it strikes me as that's probably something that actually happened. Right. In the coat, Billy finds two small lumps, but he doesn't know what they are. But there's a sort of weird voice that tells him you could do wonderful things if you don't try to figure out what they are. But it doesn't really matter (laughs) because he kind of pulls them out at a time which doesn't really help him anyway. Right. The diamond, though, does help get him towards his wife. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, in the movie, the diamond is given as more like an anniversary gift gift, later. It makes more sense to me what they did in the book, where it's actually the engagement ring. ring, Billy will time slip out to 1948. He's in the mental ward of the VA hospital. There are birds outside singing pretty wheat. And he's avoiding his mother, where he's just hiding from her. 
Which the scene has done really well in the movie. Yeah, just like under the peeks out from under the blankets and then just shuts it, yeah. <laughs> you get to meet Elliot Rosewater, which is interesting because Elliot Rosewater and Kilgore Trout are kind of written out of the movie. Yeah. But they're such an important part of the book. Yeah. Because Kilgore Trout, I think, is Kurt Vonnegut, yeah? Could be. It certainly could be. I don't think he's working for a newspaper, bossing, you know, paper boys around and stuff. But (laughs) I do think that he's probably throwing out some Kilgore Trout books that he thinks he will never actually be able to write. But isn't it a funny idea? Yeah. And some beautiful ones. There's some great books there, man. I don't know if they're great books. I think there's some great short stories. And I do wonder if some of these, if he didn't do already. The Money Tree is just great. That's the the number one, yeah. (laughs) It grows 20s. And it fertilizes on the people who come and kill each other over them. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> there are a number of Jesus ones where Jesus is glad to have the work as a boy to build a cross for some troublemakers because they need the money. Yeah. And another one where somebody goes back in time just to prove, did Jesus actually die and sneaks a stethoscope in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that part. And that's, Not something I think would have worked well in the movie, but boy, is that fun in the book. Yeah, it's really good. And that might be one of the reasons why the book got a bit of heat from the Christian kind of people that wanted it out of schools and stuff, probably maybe considered blasphemous or something like that. The reason I bring up Kilgore Trout here, though, is in this section, we're also told that he's written a book that's also sort of about Billy's situation, a character who encounters aliens who... I think can see in the fourth dimension, so very much the Trophimadorians. Right. Without knowing anything, he's kind of created that. There's another book later that's described, which is also very similar to Billy's situation. It's just oddly specific. Right. We're going to go back to war, hearing Billy... Well, he's going to overhear Derby talking to the English colonel, and the English colonel is talking about how, after all the Americans shaved that he forgot that the war is not just being fought by middle-aged men like themselves, but by these babies, these children. Mm -hmm. The children's crusade. We jump back to the VA hospital where the fiancé is, I think, eating a Three Musketeers bar, which may be on (laughs) purpose. (laughs) The diamond in the ring is the one that Billy found in the war, and Rosewater admits that he likes Kilgore Trout's ideas, but the writing is terrible, which is very interesting. (laughs) Trout could not be found, but we are told by Vonnegut that he and Billy will become friends and that he actually lives about three blocks away from Billy's home or something. Yeah. <laughs> On Trophimador, Billy is 44. He's naked so that they could look at him. Mm-hmm. The locals love looking at him. The atmosphere is cyanide, which is why he can't try to escape. There's no point. There's a description of a typical day in the zoo where he's getting breakfast, he does some exercises, people wow over him, and there's a really interesting line in there, something about Billy finally became happy with his body or felt comfortable in his body because they didn't know he wasn't the best specimen. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, oddly, he's actually doing more exercise and looking better than he would before. Mm Mm-hmm. It's after this that he's going to jump back to finding all the poor men in the latrine (laughs) that I mentioned earlier. But just before that is a time slip to the honeymoon where Billy has finally graduated. He's third in his class. He's running a clinic. He's married to Valencia. Everything seems good there. In the movie, they make a big deal about the fact that this is their first time. 
Mm-hmm. But what is interesting is that in both, Valencia says she's happy because she thought no one would ever marry her. It's kind of sad. Yeah, it's very sad. <laughs> but in a way, it's happy because Billy made her happy just by accepting her. Right. Lazaro, when we jump back to the wartime, has his arm broken because he's trying to steal cigarettes from one of the British soldiers. <laughs> and the British soldier, who's, he keeps being referred to as the Blue Fairy Godmother, I think, because that's what he played in the Cinderella play. Right. Says, so oh, I didn't realize he was so brittle. Like, I wouldn't have hit him so hard if I had known that this is what he is. Yeah. In 1968, we jump to Barbara Golding Billy for writing the letters. So we're kind of going back to where his story began for us. She calls an oil burner because the furnace isn't working and puts Billy to bed. We jump to Trophimador. This is where Montana Wildhack appears. What a name. (laughs) (laughs) And she was a, what Vonnegut refers to, a blue movie actress. Right. And in the movie, they cover this even a bit more because I think she's in an issue of Playboy and they're at a drive-in where her movie is playing and she's taking off her clothes. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. They changed the bit as well in the book, in the movie, with the, the bit where he finds his son in the toilet with the Playboy magazine. Yes. In the book, it's, it is a bit weird in the book. He's just in the toilet with the guitar. And yeah. it's like, But I think in the book, what he was trying to show was how ridiculous the son was. Right, okay. Like, the one in the movie, that's a bit believable. Yeah. But the one in the book, he's just so ridiculous and so terrible. Yeah. Like, Robert, in the book, as a boy, in the movie, he's... And his friends have knocked over like no, 10 re- stones or something. Yeah, but in the book, it's just like hundreds. It's like hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> as well as just a ton of other things. But we keep being told he will straighten himself out. Yeah. And I, I get that. But I think that the way just visually we get that in the movie, mm-hmm. the way he's dressed, the way his hair is, the way he behaves and responds to everything with kind of a teenager scowl. Mm-hmm. But the way he totally respects his father at the end, even saluting him, really brings Robert from, ugh. You know, we also see him having been thrown in the back of the cop car because he was the one that was caught kicking over the headstones. His friends all got away. Seeing that scene and then seeing him later respecting his father, saying, I'm sorry, I just want you to be proud of me. And in both cases, Billy says, I am proud of you. Yeah. But it, something about the visual of seeing it in the movie just really worked for me in a way that the book, it was nice, but it didn't have any real emotion to it for me. But it really did when I saw him dressed up in uniform. I think I just need that visual. Yeah, because he's not even like a soldier. He's a Green Beret, you yeah. know? He's like top, <laughs> top notch, you know? <laughs> but that's the thing. It's just like, I just want you to be proud of me. And yeah, he's obviously, he feels really bad about what he did. And yeah, true regret. But, but yeah, again... His son kind of becomes part of the war machine, though, doesn't he? And he says the same thing that Campbell says of communism. We haven't talked about Campbell yet, but... He hasn't come into the book Not yet, yet, but Campbell says something along the lines of we have to, like, stamp out communism before it comes to our shores or something like that. And that's exactly what his son says. And so I get why in in the book and in the movie, Billy's just... He doesn't really have any emotion to his son. It is a really good turn for us as a viewer or as a reader to see a son that, yeah, you know, you pulled yourself together, but it's also, it must be so disappointing for Vonnegut as a person to write that character, being that he's so anti-war, and that's what his son became. Wildhack appearing. She appears nude. <laughs> in the 
movie, Billy actually has clothes on. And so he just has to give her what he can and tells the Trophimadorians, you need to get her some good clothes. And she wants the best because that's what she's used to. And Get down to Walmart. (laughs) Well, Sears in those days, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And she appreciates the fact that he did that. In the book, that's not there. She just kind of accepts him in time. But Billy makes no moves on her until she basically makes the move. It's pretty comical in the movie, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. She does not tackle him in the book. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, I love that thing where he's just like, can I kiss you? Yeah, okay. (laughs) But the bit in the movie that really was weird was when she arrives. It's got to be on purpose. But when she arrives, she just has this like monkey scream that she keeps on. Like she sounds like, "Ah!" (laughs) it's just weird, man. Just like, I get it. You're in a zoo. And I think you went a bit overboard with the monkey sounds though. Back to war. Mm -hmm. The British have kicked the Americans out. They're drawing a line literally in the sand or in the dirt to say, you stay on your side and we'll stay on ours. They have some sort of... Why do they kick them out again, though? Why do they... Well, they feel that the Americans are uncouth Mm. and are not of the proper spirit. Right. And they destroyed their latrines because they're all sick. Uh. So it really, to me, just felt like... They didn't understand the Americans' condition. They didn't understand what was going on. And they've had it so easy by comparison for four years. They keep going on with, oh, well, we haven't seen a woman or a child in four years. But you've been fed and relatively warm and taken care of and playing bridge with the German colonel who comes in and is your friend. Enough cigarettes to last you till the end of the war. Yeah. And so they're trying to be nice, but they were expecting them to come in and be jolly good the same Mm -hmm. way that they are. And the Americans are just, that troop is just beaten up. Yeah. And dying and sick. (laughs) So I think that they were just expecting them to be happy and fun to get along with, and they weren't. Mm. That could be me throwing that in there. But they came out dancing and singing. And the Americans, in the book even, that election of you must have a leader, you need to have a vote. They're all still trying to sleep off because they were sick all night. Yeah. They do something clever here with the movie where Lazaro tries to vote for himself. Mm -hmm. He nominates himself. But then when they say, oh, but the leader might be the one to get punished if you guys do anything bad. He goes, well, I'm going to take myself out. Unnominate myself. Have it, Edgar. (laughs) Yeah. There was a part in it, though, that um, because, again, with Campbell, he wrote down, like, America's, they've got this, what does he say? He's got the, they have a hatred, oh, yeah, a hatred of the poor and a lack of fraternal love. And Right, this that, comes from the articles he wrote that we get in the book, but we don't get it at all in the movie. That's right. But the British are kind of doing the same thing, where they are like that in the beginning, but then they eventually get rid of them. They just jettison all of the Americans that come in and they're doing more or less the same. We're also going to get, around this time, Lazarus is going to declare vengeance against the Blue Fairy Godmother, talks about his horrible revenge story against the dog. Yeah. yeah. And then says how he can get revenge on anyone at any time for about a thousand bucks in expenses. He can have anyone shot, which kind of leads up to we're told that Billy's going to be shot on February 13th, 1976, because of Lazaro. Billy, in fact, recorded his death details and says how Lazaro's going to kill him and explains it as well to the crowd, which is what we get in the movie. He's explained to the crowd, well, I'm going to die soon. And it's because of Lazaro. 
It's because he's a bit crazy, but it's okay because that's the way things are. It is what it is. And so it goes. Mm. Farewell, hello, farewell, hello. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the police offer to protect him, but he refuses. And it's like after he refuses, a red laser dot appears and Billy is shot dead. Mm -hmm. And this is chapter six. Yeah. Right? <laughs> There's still uh, four more chapters to go after this one. Yeah. But we jump to wartime. Derby is writing letters. In the movie, he's actually writing the letters. But in the book, he seems to just be writing them in his head. Like maybe he doesn't actually have the means to write letters. Lazaro is having terrible thoughts about what he wants to do when he gets home. Yet this is where they are living in the theater and where... Billy puts on the silver boots for the first time and he wraps himself in a nest of these theater curtains, which probably aren't very warm, but yeah. they're warmer than nothing. Derby is lamely elected. In the movie, they do this whole thing where he tries to give a speech, but not much of that really happens in the book. Vonnegut speaks to Billy when they finally do get to Dresden, because from here, they're, they're going to get to Dresden, and both in the book and the movie, they say, oh, well, Dresden's going to be a great place. It's very open. There's no military force there, yeah. so it's not a target. They're going to arrive, and someone says, it's beautiful, like Oz. And Vonnegut says, that's me. That's what I said. They're going to be escorted by some very poor soldiers, really young and really old, one of them, I think, even has a prosthetic leg and a cane. Right. We are told they're worried about having to escort these battle-hardened soldiers <laughs> until they see Billy in his get-up, and then they're at ease yeah. from that point on. People are all watching Billy as he looks on. In the book, we are told that Billy knows there's only going to be like 30 days left until this place gets bombed, so he'd enjoy looking at it before it goes. Yeah. There's some German surgeon or something who comes out and just starts yelling at Billy and why aren't you taking life seriously or something? And Billy just pulls the two lumps out of the coat, which are partial denture and the diamond that he's going to use to engage to get engaged to yeah. his wife. I, I don't understand that as much in the book. It seems very random that he would do that. Mm. But in the movie, finding the stuff didn't seem as random, but... The old man just running up and slapping Billy did seem very random. And I didn't get it. I don't know why. I mean, was it because Billy... He was like playing with kids or something? He touched the child, maybe. So he's like, how dare you, you know, slap. In my mind, it was just there to show that they weren't welcome. Perhaps. But poor Billy. He's always getting it. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 7, Billy is sitting on... Oh, well, just before that, at the end of Chapter 6 is where they're taken to Slaughterhouse-Five and told the address, and you must memorize it. They make a big deal out of that, but it never really comes to anything. Well, it does, kind of, in the fact that... Well, it happens in the next chapter, I believe, when he wakes up and the... Was it Austrian skiers come yeah, up to yeah, him? Yeah, 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 in the plane crash. That's all he can think to say right. because he thinks he's still in the war. He's mm. confused. So this is a time where he wasn't exactly time slipping, but he thought he was. How awful is that scene, though, where Billy is sitting on the plane that he knows will crash? In the book, he just accepts it. But in the movie, he, it's the only time he ever tries to stop anything. Yeah. And he tries and he can't. And then it crashes and you see his father-in-law floating in the air. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In the book, you get these barbershop quartet that is here <laughs> singing away <laughs> and I did not think we would get them in the movie I forgot that they were there we got there them. They were, yeah. 
That's going to be a very niche group of uh, people, like <laughs> a barbershop of, what is it, ophthalmologist? Not ophthalmologist. Optometrist. What's, the, what's an optometrist and an ophthalmologist then? Well, an optometrist would check your eyes. What does an ophthalmologist do? Is that not checking your eyes? Maybe it's a British thing. All right. I'll have to check this out. <laughs> right, you I'm going to investigate. Right. <laughs> we get a wartime memory of Billy seeing a Polish farmer who had been killed for having sex with a German woman. We go back further to the Three Musketeers time for a minute. And then we jump to the plane crashing all die but Billy and the co-pilot, who's rescued by skiers, saved by a top brain surgeon. And then he time slips and dreams for days. But we are told that most of the stuff that we're getting is what really happened. So in wartime, the young guard, Warner Gluck and Derby and Billy are all looking for the kitchen, but they mistake the woman's shower for possibly being the kitchen. They look in on them inadvertently. Then they do find the kitchen and it's some kind of grumpy lady who wants to get home. And there's soup and hard bread for them. Right. A lot of their work was cleaning in this malt syrup factory, which they were all secretly spooning away. I love this story, man. Like the, the sticky spoon story. It's so good. Cause he made like, like a little lollipop of it yeah. and popped it in and his whole body felt alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that it's a little bit of nourishment. It really, it's really powerful to show you that, yeah, how much just a little thing can go, how far a little thing can go. We then get into chapter eight. This is where we meet Campbell in person. He's a propaganda person who defected to Germany and wanted to recruit some of them. The outfit sounded ridiculous in the book. It looks amazingly ridiculous <laughs> in the movie. It's the only thing that Lazaro did that was actually good, was make fun of that guy's outfit. <laughs> but it's at this time when he's trying to do this derby, stands up to him. Yeah. This is where I think they've defined in the movie Derby's character, because he's very patriotic. He was a teacher. And he really loves his wife. And this is what they really capitalized and used to make him a much more full character in the movie than he is in the book. Yeah. The only thing we really get in the book is he stands up patriotically to Campbell and that's about it. But it doesn't even really have the same meaning or impact as it did in the movie. It just works very, very well there. Yeah, I would agree on that for sure. The air raid sirens go off. The whole group hides in the basement. I believe this is where some of the cattle and sheep and pigs are hanging. So it goes. Those. We're going to time slip to Barbara saying she hates Kilgore Trout. Billy is his friend now. We then jump back a little bit to find out how they became friends because Billy helps him deliver some papers and just happened to be driving through and recognize this author that he'd known about for a very long time. And even Kilgore Trout <laughs> was so used to not being recognized as a writer that he was a bit confused as to why <laughs> Billy was talking to him. We also cut to a bit later where they're at a big house party. Kilgore tries telling all these ridiculous lies to this very beautiful woman called Maggie and making up stories as he goes. Billy has a panic attack when the barbershop quartet goes off. When it's singing, he tr this is where he tries to hide in the bathroom and finds his son with a guitar strapped around him. Yeah, But it's there because he remembers hiding in the bombing and leaving the shelter to see it all destroyed. To him, these things are connected. It's something about the way it feels, I think, that reminds him of how that time felt. And remembering 
coming out and seeing what he continually describes as the moon because everything had just been completely blown away, like right. nothing was left. But as he puts it, once they start actually trying to move around it, it looks round and okay until you actually start touching it and everything is hot and sharp and dangerous once you actually get close. Yeah. At the end of this, so there is a bit where Billy is telling Montana about the Dresden bombing and it leads into him talking about how it was like the moon and, and dangerous up close. But at the end of the chapter, they find an inn and the Germans can stay in the inn, but the Americans can stay in the stable, which is fine. That's in it itself is its own little sad story of this one family that survived with this inn that survived and they just kept working because they didn't know what else to do and maybe somebody would need them yeah and somebody definitely did need them a few soldiers and a hundred americans in chapter nine valencia dies trying to get to see billy in the hospital i mean i'm sorry but this part was supposed to be comical yeah I think so. Okay, good, because I don't want to laugh for the wrong reasons, but that was absolutely hilarious. It was like watching Cannonball Run and something like the Pink Panther. It was ridiculous, man, this whole scene. In the book, it's just kind of handled quickly. Yeah. And I always thought, boy, she's really just stupid. And she is in the movie as well, but it's this funny scene in the movie where it's not really funny in the book. It didn't work for me. I think the idea was meant to be funny. But I just kept thinking, oh, she's so stupid. Again, in the movie, she's even more because she crashed and came back again and crashed and crashed. <laughs> so it's so guy, ridiculous. That guy's, some guy's pulled over to help the, the guy that was in the, in the initial crash. And he's like, and then she just took off and then, oh, and she's coming back <laughs> down, down the other lane of the road now. And then she even, even when she gets to the hospital, she crashes into the wall in the hospital somewhere. It's just, it's so ridiculous. But I did not expect to, see her dead from, like, carbon monoxide poisoning. That was, like, kind of, oh, what? Well, that's what she died of in the book. Yeah. And you could say that's why she hit the wall, was because she was already dead at that point, or passed out. But, I mean, okay, so are they saying that because the exhaust broke, that carbon monoxide filled the inside of the car? Yes. So it wasn't, like, a suicide, like, where you, no. like, rolled that, roll up the windows no, and stuff? No, she was just trying desperately to get to see Billy. Because I thought the way that they described it was when she crashed into the wall, she kind of passed out, and then that room filled up with smoke. But I was like, mm, that wouldn't happen. I mean, you might get smoke inhalation, you know, problems, but I don't think you'd die. No, from I think they're trying to say because she drove so long with the exhaust coming up through the floorboards. Right. So it's like well, an old style car. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Well, it depends. If it got completely ripped off, then yeah. Mm. Because basically, that goes all the way under the car from out the to engine. the back yeah. from the engine. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit ridiculous, but okay. Yeah. We have Billy unconscious in the room with ex-brigadier Rumford, who's married to his fifth wife, oh, yeah. his trophy wife. His fifth wife, who's like a quarter of his age or something like that, they say. I don't even think it's half his age. Because he's 70, isn't he, or something like I that. I think so. She's 25 still, or something yeah. like that, yeah. Barbara is kind of drugged up to deal with all the issues as she comes to see Billy for the first time. We time slip to Billy being 16 and just some... Old farty and belchy man says he knew getting old would be bad, but not this bad. <laughs> Just seems to be throwing more of the I don't like getting old comments in yeah. the book. In the hospital, this is where Robert is now the respectable Green Beret in the book. And he comes in, whereas in the movie, it's in his home and Spot is on his bed. Spot is already dead in the book by this yeah, point. Yeah. But in the movie, he they really wanted to show time. him being like a puppy and then 
He's such a feeble old dog as well. <laughs> and he's even there right until the baby's born on Trofamador, isn't he? He's there the whole way. Right. Billy shows no emotion. He misses Valencia's funeral in both cases. He doesn't even want to go to see the gravestone in the movie. He's already writing his letters in his head about Trofamador, and he tries to convince Rumford he was in Dresden, but Rumford doesn't want to hear it for a while. In chapter 9, we go back to war. Billy and the others are in a horse-drawn cart. They're grabbing souvenirs. Everybody has left Dresden. The Russians are coming to take over. There were some German doctors that admonished Billy for how bad the horses were being treated. And he cries. And it says this is, I think, the only time in war that he cried. Something like that. That's very Nietzsche, that part. There's a lot of like kind of philosophy in this book. And I think that is very put in on purpose. I don't know if there's a Nietzsche connection, but towards the end of his life, there's a, there's a really famous story about him seeing a horse and breaking down and crying and stuff. Rumford is now finally listening to Billy about what happened, and Rumford's saying, oh, but we had to do it, it was important, and Billy just says, well, it is what it is. Billy's going to essentially finish up his story by being arrested by the Russians, and all the Americans are sent home on some ship. When he's home from the hospital as an older man, Billy's, this is the scene where he's going to sneak away to New York City to try and get on TV. He can't, but he does get on radio, and he's able to say his one bit before they kick him out. Yeah. Because the whole thing was supposed to be about... Yeah, it was something completely our, different. Our novel's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Very funny that he's talking about our novel's dead back in 69. Yeah. <laughs> he's also going to end up at some adult bookstore where... In the window, there were some Kilgore Trout novels, and none of the guys working there understand why he wants these novels. <laughs> no, no, no. The stuff he wants in the back. <laughs> and all this stuff about there's a peep show movie with Montana Hack in the back, and a magazine saying, where is she? She went missing. We assume she's under the sea somewhere. And he knows exactly where she is. She's on Trough Amateur. And that's where we're going to jump to there, so that we can see her breastfeeding their child, and her necklace has the Serenity poem on it. Yeah. Saying that this means so much to him, and she already had it as being important to her. So it could kind of go into your connection that they're just a much better fit, these two together, and that he cares. You think it's maybe a second chance. I thought it was partly because maybe he cares so much more for Montana than he did for Valencia. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just because he's trapped there. Yeah. Could be. But one thing confused me, though, is she went missing, and they they repeatedly, maybe two two times, maybe three times even, they say that she's gone missing. But no one ever comments that he's gone missing. He was taken back, according to him, in the book, and I think in the movie as well, that he was dropped back pretty much at the time when he left. Because I, I think they did say that. It says, is that how they get around it? So they, they abduct her, and she's gone. She's, like, objectively missing. Yeah, they do say in the beginning that his eternity on Trofamador can be a millisecond, so he could be in multiple places at the same time. That's right. They do explain that. Because I was thinking, I was, I did get to a point where I was thinking, is this all a head injury? Is this why he's doing it this? It could be. But I don't want to think that. No, that's the case. I, prefer it, <laughs> I prefer it as it is. Yeah. Chapter 10, our final chapter, Vonnegut returns to narrate about himself, speaks about recent deaths like Martin Luther King mm -hmm. and Robert Kennedy and people in Vietnam. He's talking about his time that he and 
O'Hare were taking the private flight. They'd both done well for each other, so they could take the private flight, I think, to Dresden. Mm-hmm. I think that's where they're going. Billy and Vonnegut were there back in time for the removing of the corpses, or what they referred to as corpse mines. And this is the bit that is a bit out of order. This is the only bit in the war that's out of order, and the fact that we're going to end with Billy getting into the cart where they were taking the horses. Right. But they were talking about how the bodies at first were okay. They were like wax dummies. You could tag them and bring them up, but when they started to rot, then the smell of mustard gas and roses and how awful they were, and it was better to just cremate them where they were. In the movie, they create a pile of them, but in the book, they were just taking flamethrowers that seemed mm-hmm. down to wherever they were and burning them where they were. Right. And it's just horrific, the idea of having to dig out all of these bodies. Eventually, they just find that one day they don't have to work because nobody is there and the stable door is unlocked. Everybody's gone and this is when they get the cart. And as I said, this is the only war story that's out of order. We hear a bird say putuit and that's the end. Because even this whole story, in a way, is kind of meaningless and things have been going on and on. And I don't really like the last chapter, honestly. It doesn't end the way I'd want it to end. I feel like chapter 9 ends the way I want it to end. The movie as well doesn't end the way I want it to end. The movie ends with the baby and Montana and fireworks and everybody is happy. Yeah. The book is not meant to be a happy ending. There is no happy ending It's all kind of pointless. There is no ending. (laughs) And that's the point. And I feel like the movie felt it had to have some sort of happy ending. You don't want to leave people miserable at the end. But I think that's what was warranted here. And I think that that's probably what they should have gone with. What I will say, what I want to say, is that the Edgar Derby story, Mm -hmm. what they added to him of having him befriend and protect Billy. Yep having him actually write the letter to his wife and read it to Billy, talking about the little statue that had been broken. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, him finding that statue and wanting to pocket it, not really thinking about it, and then immediately being taken away and executed as the soldiers who found him just throw it away because it's so meaningless anyway. Yeah. That whole storyline works. And Roach is a great actor. He just really embodies that character and it works very well and that is a huge improvement for me from the book. Edgar Derby is just the guy who stole the teapot and died and that's all we get over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. So I would say that I do appreciate that about the movie. Yeah, that scene was good. Like That scene was really harsh and yeah, just the way that they just talk, like, what is this? And they're all speaking in German. You don't understand what they're saying but they're they're obviously like, this is just garbage. You just put like seven bullets in that guy over that doll. I assume that's what they're saying. Was this worth dying for? Yeah. I think that the movie and... I I don't find the book as hard to get through to understand, but I do think that the movie, the first time I watched it, was very perplexing. And I'm glad that I've persevered, that I've gone through a couple times, because having watched it just today to get ready to talk about it today, the movie is so well put together. It and is. It looks so good. And like I said, they've done what I like in adaptations where they've taken a few things, made them a little bit better. Mm -hmm. They've taken a lot of the dialogue directly from the book. And so it feels the same and it feels connected. And outside of that happy ending, it still has a lot of terrible, terrible moments that bring up a lot of thoughts and discussion. And 
I just think it, it works very well, and I'm glad to have gone through it again. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, and then and not only that is like the other thing that I was saying before was they've chosen very well what to cut and what to not include is great in the book. The whole idea of the narrator in the book is excellent, and you need it, but. You don't need it in the book. I mean, sorry, you don't need it in the movie. And in fact, I don't, I hate it when they include narration in movies. <laughs> it's so pointless. I'm looking at it. I'm watching it. You don't need to tell me what I'm looking at. But there's one thing that really struck me from uh, reading the book. And that was the whole part where he basically describes this. Now, I'm going to describe, the, I'm going to say this to you. Yeah. And then you tell me. So he talks about seeing a bomber attack in reverse. And the way he describes it is awesome. He's like, so I watched airplanes suck bombs out of buildings and and then a city that was on fire was then restored to its its, its former glory. And I was like, oh, look, it's Tenet. It's huh. like Vonnegut was first. <laughs> uh, like way first. He basically, yeah, is like... That's right. That is a fantastic scene that I, I'm glad you brought up. That whole way is described of like scientists delicately putting the minerals back into the earth where they will be not found or used for harm ever again. Yeah. Yeah. I just think in the book, he describes it as Billy watching the movie backwards and then forwards, but he only describes it backwards. But it's so beautifully how it's just beautiful the way he's written it as it's going back to everything being okay. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And especially that whole, that whole scene where he's like des- describing like soldiers came back to life or whatever, whatever it was, like like the bombs being sucked out of buildings and put back in their cases and yeah. And then yeah, back into the box or whatever. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, after watching Tenet, like, yeah, this is much better. <laughs> well, we're not probably going to talk about Tenet because I think we both agree that <laughs> that's a pretty low bar to say. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it was that. And the, the the book is full of lines that if I ended up writing down all the lines that I liked, it would be half the book. But there's one point where it's like the TV, it was 8pm, so all the shows were just about silliness or murder. And I was like, wow, nothing's changed since 1969 then. Uh, just really poignant little bits that he says that, yeah, like it's eight o'clock, kids are watching, but it's just it's silliness or murder. And that's that's what we've become accustomed to. It's great. And that's... Again, why I think that I like Vonnegut. The way he writes, the voice he uses, the interesting turns of phrases that he has, the way he has these through stories, but also tangents that seem related, but are their own thing and their own comment. It just interests me so much more. You're going to always get me with fiction in a way that a nonfiction book just won't. Gaps filled or more gaps created. <laughs>